It's Monday, December 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The House Intelligence Committee has set a Tuesday vote to approve the release of their report on President Trump's dealings with Ukraine. After the release of the report, the investigation is handed off to the Judiciary Committee to write articles of impeachment. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for what's next in the impeachment inquiry and Joe Biden's eight-day no-malarkey bus tour in Iowa. Next, it's one of the most compelling UFO cases in modern history, the Nimitz UFO Encounters. And while we already know about how the Nimitz encountered a tic-tac-shaped aerial vehicle, we're hearing from other witnesses to the event. These witness accounts say that shortly after the encounter, there was a rush to turn over all the data concerning the UFO sighting, and that two men quickly departed with all the relevant data to the event. Tim McMillan, contributor to Popular Mechanics, joins us for what we learned from the other Nimitz witnesses. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My Republican colleagues that say there's nothing to see here or, yeah, it's bad, but is it really something you'd remove from the president from office for? They're going to have to answer if this conduct doesn't rise to the level uh, of the concern the founders have, what conduct does? Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Updates on the impeachment inquiry that's going on this coming week. Adam Schiff, the House Intelligence Committee chairman, has set a Tuesday meeting to approve the release of a report that's uh, detailing their findings on the president's dealings with Ukraine. Uh, I guess they're going to release it Monday night so people can start kind of going through it. And then the vote to publicly release it is going to be on Tuesday. What do we know about what's going to be in this report? This report is going to summarize all of the testimony that we've seen in public over the last few weeks, as well as some of the closed door testimony for which they released transcripts. The goal, from what we understand, is to sort of take it all together, synthesize it, and turn it into one narrative, one paper, so that if someone wanted to sit down and read it without having to watch the hours upon hours of testimony that we've heard, they could take a main takeaway. As you said, Adam Schiff's committee has drafted this report. It is being written by the Democrats without the cooperation of the Republicans. Members of the committee will have what they're saying is about 24 hours to review this report, to go over it, to make any suggestions for changes. And then they will have that vote on Tuesday to release it, particularly to release it to the rest of the members of Congress. And we expect this to be a very partisan vote with Democrats voting to release it and Republicans voting against it and what we expect this to be an, an entirely partisan process as it moves right. through the House. Do we expect this to be like the Mueller report where it's hundreds and hundreds of pages and not really anybody's going to read it? And uh, I mean, is it going to kind of go along that same lines? No, we expect it to at least in part be shorter and more synthesized. We've seen this committee release summaries of transcripts of interviews that they've done so far. And in those cases, they would put out a couple of pages of summary of the key highlights and then the longer portions. And I would expect this to be similar, not identical, but similar, where there would be an executive summary or some type of initial summary followed by a slightly longer narrative and then maybe followed by something that's quite lengthy of which you would not expect people to read. That's being done, they would hope, so that maybe more people who aren't going to sit down and read a 400-page report might read a one-page or a four-page report on these, this impeachment process. After this next step, it goes to the Judiciary Committee chaired by Gerald Nadler. 
And then it's up to them to see what they're going to do. If they're going to write up any articles of impeachment, they're saying abuse of power surrounding the dealings with Ukraine, obstruction of justice. That goes back to the Mueller investigation. These are the top two that they think that might be in there. That's right. So if we were looking at this process the way we look at, say, criminal processes, right, the Intelligence Committee just did the work of the police department. They went out and they gathered all of the facts. They got all of the testimony and they're going to summarize all of their facts and all of their testimony and send it over to the Judiciary Committee. The Judiciary Committee is going to act kind of like the lawyers. They're going to sit down and they're going to debate the law and the Constitution in the lens of having looked at all of these facts. But there are hearings that we expect over the next week or so are, should be very academic. Professors, lawyers debating whether or not uh, the things that the president did that were established in this fact testimony actually qualify as impeachable offenses under the United States Constitution. And from there, the Judiciary Committee members will decide what they would write in these articles of impeachment if they write them and, and whether or not to pass them. There's a ton of investigations going on by the Department of Justice and the FBI, and a lot of people are asking the questions now that we're getting into election year, into 2020, will there be something kind of similar to 2016? You know, how partisan might these departments get? Uh, they're looking into Rudy Giuliani. They're looking into some of the people that he's been working with. And this raises a lot of questions for Attorney General William Barr. People have been accusing him of protecting the president. So there's a lot uh, of questions going around about what the Department of Justice, what the FBI are going to be doing to investigate these people and possibly the president himself. Now, in theory, the Department of Justice and the U.S. attorneys in the regional areas who make up the Department of Justice are supposed to be fairly independent, separate from the president, operating on their own with their own decision-making processes. So. A regional U.S. attorney, say, for instance, the one in the Southern District of New York, who's been conducting this investigation into Giuliani, can make the choices and decisions to investigate on their own. But at a point, they have to get permission or at least some buy-in from the attorney general. It's still not clear. We know that associates of Rudy Giuliani are being investigated. We know that Rudy Giuliani is being investigated. We don't know what level of involvement Attorney General Barr has had, but as you point out, there are some questions, particularly among Democrats, critics of the president, about whether or not William Barr could cut off such an investigation. Such a decision would be very politically fraught. And Bill Barr is not making his decisions based on politics, but he has to be aware of them. If it were perceived that the president's administration were blocking investigations into his attorney, that would come with a lot of political ramifications. But there is these investigations going on, and we are watching them closely to see what comes about and, and what could happen, especially given the fact that we are rapidly approaching an yeah. election in which those ramifications could be very closely felt. And speaking of which, just a quick check in on the Democrats for in their race for the nomination. There still seems to be no clear front runner. Obviously, Joe Biden leads in a lot of the national polls, but we're starting to talk about Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and people are throwing around some crazy scenarios. Pete Buttigieg to win in Iowa, Elizabeth Warren to win in New Hampshire, Joe Biden, South Carolina, and then Bernie Sanders wins in Nevada. Let's say this is this crazy thing that happens. And people are saying this could leave an opening for uh, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, there's, it's just going crazy right now. And uh, Joe Biden is launching his no malarkey bus tour. What do we see going on with the Democrats right now? That's right. Joe Biden started this weekend an eight-day tour across Iowa. So he is going to be spending a lot of time on the ground there, proving that he's not given up on the state, even as other 
candidates have surged at various times in the polls. A scenario in which four different candidates win the first four states is one that does open the race up probably just to those four over the long term. However, Pete Buttigieg, if you look at his numbers in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, they are not good. And so even a win in Iowa might not be enough to pull him along. But it is still a very much a long shot for someone like a Bloomberg, even if the race feels very wide open. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. tic-tac, as it's been called, about 40 feet in length, no control surfaces. Him and the other pilots described this thing instantaneously taking off at a hypersonic speed, unlike anything they'd ever seen. Joining us now is Tim McMillan, retired police lieutenant, intelligence analyst, and contributor to Popular Mechanics. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Good to be here. We're going to be talking about the Nimitz UFO encounters. It's an event that the Navy recently confirmed that indeed involved the unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is kind of the new terminology they use for UFOs. You got together some of these other men who were witnesses to what happened there. We obviously have seen the video that the New York Times released showing this tic-tac-shaped aerial vehicle doing some crazy maneuvers. But there was a lot of other people present on the ship that might have seen some of this video, other things. Give us the the super quick version of what happened with the Nimitz UFO encounter. In November 2004, the Strike Carrier Group 11, the Nimitz Carrier Group, was undergoing workups before pre-deployment. They also had a host of new technology on board they were working the kinks out with. Very shortly after going underway in the radar center, they started getting very peculiar radar returns, strange returns on their scopes. Some of these systems were brand new, like the Spy 1 Bravo radar system. And so initially they thought they were ghost or clutter meaning the system's malfunctioning. And I was able to speak to both the the people who were observing those on the scopes and then the guy whose job, the one person on the USS Princeton whose job it was to make sure those things were working properly. So they took the systems down, put them back up, and these contacts were clearer and still there. They were better than they were before. And they were just peculiar. They were moving. They were going up and down from 80,000 feet to 60,000 feet to 30,000 feet very rapidly, according to the systems. And they were moving in groups of 10 at a time at roughly around 100 knots. So very slow, slower than a fixed wing aircraft should be cruising. After this went on for about a week, Kevin Day, who's the chief combat controller inside the USS Princeton, which is the missile cruiser ship. He told me he takes the planes to the fight. He controls the airspace around the group. It's his job. He was able to convince his commander that he felt like these objects needed to be investigated. They happened to have two F-18s going up that day for an exercise. And so he was able to take control, which means direct them in to try to locate one of these objects. And that brings us to mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. squadron commander, David Fravor, who went out there. Yes. And then Mm -hmm. we have this summary of what he saw. What he Mm -hmm. saw was this anomalous aerial vehicle, as they describe it, and it descended very rapidly from approximately 60,000 feet to about 50 feet in a matter of seconds. And he reported that it was an elongated egg or a tic-tac shape, solid white, smooth with no edges. And it was making all of these crazy twists and turns in the air, something that they hadn't encountered before. 
We have three other eyewitnesses because there were two planes in the air. So each one had a weapons system officer and a pilot on board. And so Commander Fravor is really the only one we've heard from. The other pilot has appeared with her identity concealed and everything. But what they saw was the, exactly what you described, the, the tic-tac, as it's been called, about 40 feet in length, no control surfaces. It actually began to mimic Commander Fravor's flight pattern. He was circling down to get closer to the object because it was hovering over the ocean surface. And as he's circling down, it's circling up, following him. And when he describes his cuts the pie, like he's trying to cut across the circle to get behind it, kind of like a dogfight at this point, him and the other pilots describe this thing instantaneously taking off at a hypersonic speed, unlike anything they'd ever seen. It would be subsequently where we got the video that I think has been released and maybe is describing some of the movements that you mentioned. That would come when Commander Fravor and his wingmen landed back on the Nimitz and had another flight going up. And fighter pilots, I give them credit, man. Nothing but respect for those guys because they want to go chase the drama. (laughs) Exactly. What happens Mm -hmm. after all of that and some of the other witnesses that you talked to? Because on the deck there, they were reviewing video. They were looking over stuff. And that's where some of the witnesses, other witnesses come in. They saw some of this video going down. And then the other shocking part of this was that uh, all the data and the tapes and various systems that recorded these events, there were reports that a couple of guys showed up on a helicopter to confiscate all of that. Tapes might have been recorded over. This is like the next part of the mystery is what happened to all that quote unquote evidence. That was the big part of the mystery that has never really been discussed until that article came out, other than a good friend of mine who I met through this process, who's turned into a great friend, Dave Beatty, who put a YouTube documentary out and was able to find a lot of these guys. But outside that, it had never been discussed. And I think, in my opinion, is probably the most significant part of this story. Each one of these individuals did not tell the same story Each had a piece of the story that came together that allowed me to track these people's movements and that two individuals who were not part of the group flew aboard a helicopter, landed on the Princeton, seized all the top secret data that would have covered all the radar, the communications, everything, flew to the USS Nimitz, seized all the data from the E-2 Hawkeye, which is the airborne defense planes, the planes with the big radar dish on top. And it's kind of in dispute, but possibly sees the original at FLIR videos of this. The video that has been released now almost two years ago is one minute and 16 second clip. And frankly, it's like every other UFO video I've ever seen. It's blurry black and white. And you're like, (laughs) hey, there's something there. Um, They describe something far more dramatic and describe seeing this craft making acute right angle turns, stopping and then instantly going. Jason Turner, who was a supply technician aboard the USS Princeton, who just happened to be delivered supplies to the intelligence center room because he held a top secret clearance. And a, a friend of his said, hey, man, check this out. When he retells that story of what he saw in that video, it was remarkable for me because 15 years later, he's bothered by what he saw. So whatever he saw definitely wasn't normal. None of them described seeing something normal. And so I think that's the biggest part of the story that has just not been pushed out there enough is there's certainly preponderance evidence based on these witness testimonies, based on me and my own investigation, which included going out and tracking down a purely 
brand new witness who had never spoken out about it, knew the event had hit the news, but wasn't aware that his fellow sailors had spoken out. I gave him no background whatsoever, and he wished to remain anonymous because he holds a position still no longer in the military, but one that is of public trust. And he told me the exact same thing in terms of these guys showing up and taking top secret stuff. There was one point of contention, though, because Commander David Fravor did at some point cast some doubt on some of the accounts by some of these other witnesses. Mm -hmm. You were talking about the video and how the video that was released was only about a minute and 16 seconds long. But some of these other witnesses were saying that that video might have been longer, eight to 10 minutes or something, where they could see a lot more stuff in detail. Commander mm -hmm. Fravor on a podcast, I think he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, had said something about, well, you know, this is all BS. There wasn't anything mm -hmm. of that. Then there was no men in black suits that came and took up all of the evidence. And that was a big motivation for wanting to do this piece because I've been looking at the incident for a while, but it, I was frustrated because I said, nobody's mitigated this dispute. And I think it's a significant dispute. And so at the end of talking to everybody, which included some fighter pilots who were not in Commander Fravor's squadron, but they were F-18 pilots aboard the Nimitz during the incident who were able to break down in detail how these processes work with the tapes, who they're turned into, this kind of stuff. In my opinion, I walked away with a clearer picture to the fact the two different high probability events occur, which is another video was recorded that was longer. Whether Commander Fravor got a chance to see that or not, I don't believe he did at all. I don't believe Commander Fravor is lying at all. I believe his character and professionalism is beyond reproach. But I do believe that possibly what he was given back was the shortened version we see today. Right. And so when he saw it, he only saw the shortened version. The other possibility exists is there are some other classified different systems, um, video link systems in which the USS Princeton did have the capabilities of actually seeing and possibly recording through a data link a much longer version of it. But I spoke to Vincent Aiello, who's a pilot uh, aboard the ship, a friend of Commander Fravers, a really great guy. But he agreed with me that under normal circumstances, the pilots have two hours of eight millimeter tape. It was 2004. They were still using a little tape. <laughs> right. It would be normal for them to start recording from the time they left the ship to when they came back for any flight. In this case, these pilots were actually specifically now going to hunt this thing down because Commander Fravor had returned and told them about it. I come from a police background. We didn't let our officers just get in the habit of turning their cameras on when the action started because they never cut on. Um, <laughs> they cut on beforehand. Yeah. And so he agreed. It was very probable that that existed. I truly don't believe Commander Fravor by any means is trying to diminish it. In the military, jobs are very compartmentalized. So, you know, this is your job. This is what you do. If anybody, even commanders, squadron commanders, this type of stuff, they're damn good at what they do and they get those planes ready when they need them and they're there to do the fight and God bless them. But if there's stuff like data, it's just not pertinent to their job. It's not, you know, they're not going to call down to the radar operators of the Princeton and say, hey, man, you know, some of our planes aren't working right. Right. Because somebody else is handling guys, that. Yeah, well, they're not going to fix them. It's an interesting story. I mean, it's still one of the most compelling UFO cases in modern history, and there's so much mystery around it. But that's what makes this type of story so much fun to talk about. And we have that video and people are on both sides of it. You know, they'll say, no, that's not true. Or people are totally convinced once they see some of this stuff. So I suggest everybody go out and Check out Tim's article because there's a specific quotes from the guys that you spoke to, people that were witnesses to all this. And it's just an interesting look into the Nimitz UFO encounters. Tim McMillan, retired police lieutenant, intelligence analyst, and contributor to Popular Mechanics. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.